everything. The first snow is always a good thing. And uh, after that, we'll see. Of course, in the presence of God, and you know that we're, of course, a part of this season. Uh, the snow reminds us of it a little bit, but it, uh, we describe as Advent. And if you've been coming, you know that we're, we're focusing on this theme of darkness, a light into darkness. And I want to particularly read John 1, 5, uh, the sort of the passage we're, we're thinking about for Advent, which is, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, of course, we're hoping to, that the light of Christmas is more than just uh, something we hang on a Christmas tree or, or see beautifully adorning a city. We do appreciate that light, though. We are, of course, uh, at that time of year that we, we are nearing solstice. It's, it's actually December 21st. And, um, and so we're, 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 we enjoy much of the light, of course, but, but we are looking for something a bit more transcendent. Uh, than what can be an immediately satisfying thing with just putting up trinkets. And with that in mind, it begins to, to start a conversation with this whole thing. Uh, we will experience, of course, the longest night of the year coming up. But, and it was a night that, that particularly was celebrated by ancient religions. Uh, we think of the solstice celebrations where they would uh, tribute celebrations to their god of, of their deity of the sun, Saturnia or whatever it was. And it's in this context that Christendom then christened these celebrations, celebrations that were taken out of these ancient pagan religions. And it does sort of raise a question, doesn't it, as we're trying to engage this transcendent light of Christmas, of course, revealed in Jesus Christ. And that is the very fact that, that this season has within its very DNA, there's this kind of, in the DNA itself is this attempt to, to sort of Christianize or co-opt what is a uh, worldly way of understanding life and celebration into the church. And of course, we're aware that that, that means that there's a nice little pipeline, if not through the back door, of, of importing the, the gods, the false lights of this world, right into our spirituality. And with that sort of in mind, um, I want to particularly... Uh, reference an ancient chant. This is a chant that was uh, delivered soon after Christendom in Rome uh, sort of Christianized the pagan holiday. And it goes like this, O radiant dawn, splendor of eternal light, son of justice, come and shine on those who dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death. So herein we have now this solstice celebration turned into a Christian holiday where the cosmic contrast of light and darkness, common in nation's, uh, nature's seasons, is now being redirected to this imagery of light that's so common throughout the Bible. Uh, the image of light that speaks of the righteousness of God, but most especially, it's this light that is of a transcendent nature. That is to say that it, it's not of this world. And that's the key. And so we have to be particularly careful here uh, to remember this not-of-the-world theme. In fact, I would venture to say, if you were to read the Bible from cover to cover, there's probably no more consistent theme than the theme that what we are looking for, what we need, our source of power, our source of wisdom, is from another world. So to be clear, this part of the Christian message is to distinguish then the radiant light that is not overcome by darkness, that is not of this world, and therefore is not of the kingdoms of this world. 
This is the way that John then prefaces his gospel that led to that passage I just read to you. Let me read it to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with, with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of humanity. Beginning the quote, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Why? Because it's not a light of this world. Its power, its wisdom, transcends the power and the wisdom of the world. And so it goes on to say in John verse 9, this true light, now again, the supposition is that there's a false light that the world tends to, to worship. This true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. It was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not comprehend it. And so there's very much no more central message than this theme of the light. The light of God's radiant glory, his wisdom, his power, a light which would enter into a context of darkness. And it's that context that I want to keep focused on here, especially in this sermon today. Because last week we looked at the darkness of despair and the way in which you, we, the, the God of this world or the light of this world is such that the children of darkness would be surprised to discover that what they were looking for is coming from another world. It's the great day of the Lord. I believe you heard about that last week through Kevin's sermon. Well, see, here this week, I want to focus on something a little different. In, in continuation with that theme of not of this world kind of a light, entering into a contrasting darkness of this world, herein lies, I think, the great secret of attempting to Christian, if you will, what is otherwise a of this world holiday and all its dangers. In other words, we must be incredibly, super careful to distinguish and call out the lights of this world that are faux lights, if you will. They're, they're not the light that's going to bring all that we're hoping for. They're not the light that's going to overcome the darkness. And so we're going to have to be careful to distinguish and call out the lights of the world that therefore cannot truly enlighten the world into ultimately human flourishing and salvation. To do no less than would be to world eyes or pagan eyes Christianity. Um, I'll never forget when I first came up to New England and you know, I heard about all the celebrations in New York City and having been raised in the South, it's kind of a big deal to go to New York City. And I remember going there for my first Christmas. We actually went to the Rockette show, what's it called now? The Christmas show, I don't know what it's called. but um, And you know, and I was just struck, you know, it's just so incredibly impressive. These huge, beautiful lights, and that, you know, all through the, the stores, and all the focus on those stores. And then you go into this thing about Christmas, and what was really haunting is, you know, I'm, I'm watching gorgeous legs, and I'm looking at all these beautiful uh, images of Macy's, and you know, and the Macy materialism of the whole thing. And then, as if to somehow sanctify it all at the very end, and I don't know if they still do this. There's that little, the greatest story ever told voice comes out tells you about, you know, this one laying in a manger, and, and I just felt incredibly uncomfortable. I remember thinking to myself, you know, and I know this sounds kind of simplistic and, and gooey and ooey and all that, but what if Jesus were here? That's all I could think about is this would just, he would just go, can you imagine Jesus sitting in that room? 
And that, this is somehow just, he just got co-opted into this? And that's what we're afraid of, right? So today's sermon, I'm especially concerned to call out the counterfeit lights that are the derivative of the so-called modern or now postmodern enlightenment. So what's the difference between the Christian enlightenment, the one that here is being discussed in our passage, and the enlightenment of this world? So again, this is kind of a long introduction, but it's important because we won't spend as much time on the passage, but you'll get it quickly this way. I guess if I were to think about um, what is the other light, the counterfeit light, I would probably nail it with the word nihilism. Now actually, nihilism is sort of the product of this light because nihilism is derived from the god of humanism. Now I know, it sounds like some fundamentalist talk or something, here we go, don't just rip these out of the culture war context for a minute. Think about what those words mean philosophically for a minute. You know, if you think about it, what I'm talking about is this darkness of despair, but more than that, of a kind of exhaustion of nihilism. Um, again, this is based on this idea that happened in the Enlightenment, that, that this world is alone. Or if it's not alone, we have no access to that other world the heavenly world, if you will. And so at the very core of the Enlightenment was this Cartesian revolution, this idea that, that for us to know anything, to, to have true knowledge, is not to receive it from another world. To have true power is not to have access to it from another world. It's rather to have it within ourselves, humanly. That's what I mean by that. And out of that, I believe, is derived nihilism. That is, this idea, that this belief that all our values are baseless. You see, if you've taken out a transcendent wisdom or power, then there is no universal power anymore. There is no universal wisdom. That is, this wisdom for all people, of all, you know, everybody. Or power that's accessible to all people, no matter where they are or who they are. And so this existential form of nihilism is this belief that all values are baseless and that nothing can be known or communicated. It's often associated with extreme pessimism and this kind of a radical skepticism that condemns even our existence as, as somehow purposeful and meaningless. This true nihilist, if you would, would believe in nothing in terms of believing it as a fact, as a kind of true and certain thing to believe. Now, that's not the way we typically uh, experience our existence. So now I'm going to get into our real life. The way we experience it is, many people call it kind of a cultural nihilism. And by that, Frederick Nietzsche argued that this nihilism would eventually destroy all moral convictions and precipitate the greatest crisis in human history, where all of our institutions, all of our social mores, things like family, things like nations and all of these things would just start to implode because we would be increasingly divide, divided by the lack of any transcending wisdom, by the lack of any kind of, of call it absolute or quasi-absolute truth. Cultural nihilism by Yates, uh, he described it this way. He speaks of the fruits of nihilism when he says things fall apart and the sinner cannot hold them. Things fall apart. The 
sinner cannot hold. You know, I was just the other day talking to someone, and it's always being talked about now, isn't it? Uh, that, that, that something seems amiss, something seems really like something's really going wrong to a lot of people, I think, even living in this country. And this person said to me, and I, I thought of it with this sermon, is that we just live in a dark age. Now that's cultural nihilism, this sense of we don't even know where to begin. You know, we see it in our political rhetoric, where both sides are calling each other liars. We see it in terror, but we don't have a clue how to deal with it, really. We see it all around us. We see it in this, you know, what is abuse? What is power? How does power rightly and wrongly get abused? We're looking at it with all the sexual harassment cases. And, and there's just this kind of lack of agreement as to how we even think. I mean, there's, some, there's still a, a few remaining black and whites, but for the most part, you're hearing debate, well, what exactly is it? And how, when is it wrong? And when is it right? And it just, it just feels like the seams are coming out of us, doesn't it? Have you felt that way? And just kind of the way you see our world a little bit? Well, see, that's, that's part of what I'm wanting to touch base with. It's this idea of nihilism. It's this idea that, that there's nothing intrinsically or universally moral anymore. You can say anything, and it's my truth. You can do anything, and it's my morals. And we have no sense of how to, to debate one another as to whether those morals are, are, are good or bad. And so I'm building up a context of, of what I think is our present-day sense of feeling the darkness, the despair. And somehow, when I speak of this whole darkness thing, it's really just to say now for now. Somehow, then, Merry Christmas, ho, ho, ho. It just doesn't seem to, to answer this, this issue, does it? It's much deeper, and we all know it. And the last thing we want to be doing as a church, even on behalf of our, of our Savior, is put our head in the sand and pretend it's not there. And so here's what I want us to do here. I want us to talk about yet another kind of uh, sense of how we approach nihilism. And here I'm again going to uh, quote from Nietzsche, you know, Frederick Nietzsche. And he once explained... And this was really insightful to me. He once explained in his little notebook excerpts that he published under the, the title, The Will to Power, how nihilism is a necessary step in the transition to a reevaluation of values. Kind of odd, but he goes on to say he emphasizes that nihilism is merely a means to an end and not an end in itself. That nihilism is a transitional stage arises from this sense of weakness and weariness. Are you weary yet? Do you think our world's getting weary of the modern enlightenment? Promises to do away with war, to do away with terror, to do away with fight, to deal with love, all this stuff. Do you think we're weary yet? I feel that we're really getting real close to nihilism. Maybe you do too. But if that's true, think about what nihilism could become interesting that as we turn to our passage, how it is that Paul prefaces this, this passage with this incredible statement, you are dead. You are dead. That, that sounds pretty nihilistic to me, doesn't you? The gospel acknowledges that in these last days that there's going to be a darkness. It's not surprising to you now that you've heard that. You heard it in John, we're hearing it in Paul. 
And this, this darkness is ultimately rooted in this nihilism that's ultimately rooted in a humanism. It's the same story. We thought it was news, but it's not. Why do we say that? Because what is humanism? Humanism is this idea that we turn to ourselves. Humanism asks the questions and then sets our mind to answering those questions. We define what salvation means, and then we set our minds and our lives out to save ourselves. You see what I mean? We rely on that power which we ourselves construct. It results in this weariness, which results in this sense of hopelessness, which results in this kind of nihilism. Paul is really in touch with that in our passage. He says, listen, he says, we are dealing with a situation of darkness, a dreary situation, where people are beginning to discern Fast forward now to our passage. What Paul is doing here is actually brilliant. He takes Isaiah the prophet in a situation that he wants to import into the Ephesians church. You see, in the context of 8th century B.C., Israel, threatened from within by moral decay and exhaustion, if you will, and threatened without by threat of Assyrian invasion, well, the prophet Isaiah warned against trusting in human power. Human power. He said it this way, Woe to those who go down to Egypt to find help, who rely on horses and trust in the multitude of their chariots. For the Egyptians are, are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are mere flesh and not spirit. Well, that is exactly what he's saying. There's no difference. That, that preaches today no less than it preached the years of, of Isaiah. And then rather in anticipation of this promised glory of God revealed in the Messiah, Isaiah further warned those who would put their trust in nations. He said, when the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps you will stumble. That is the people we go to for help, or the humanity that we do. He who helped will fall, both will perish together. Instead, Isaiah proclaimed Israel's true hope would be as like a day when the, quote, the Lord will raise up among you. That is, the glory of God, his holy righteousness revealed in the Messiah, would emerge again to Israel as a light, he said, in the midst of darkness. Here's how Isaiah said it. Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen, and the nations shall flock to your light. Now what's extraordinary about this is in the context of this despair, in the context of this ancient nihilism, he's saying that we should not be ashamed of the light. They're looking for it. They want it. They're starving for it. It's a kind of optimistic take on nihilism, nihilism as a kind of preparation for the coming of the king, the coming of the light of the Lord. The church as such is now described by Paul as the, the Israel of God. This promise to Israel is now the promise that's to be manifest in the life of the church. 
And so with that idea, he takes this passage in Isaiah that I just talked about in Isaiah 60, and he just literally brings it right over to Ephesus. Notice how our passage began in chapter 4, verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must not walk any longer walk as the Gentiles do or the nations do, trusting in the nations is what he's saying. To walk in something is to trust in it. It's, it's your manner of life and how it is that you, you live that life, right? So he's saying, no, you're not going to be as nations. Your light, you see, is going to be different in the futility of your mind. They, the nations, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And then after a rather uh, thorough uh, sort of scan of how the light would be manifest in the life of the church through its morality, moral clarity, through its, its life and the way it lives its life, especially, you know, what's interesting is he takes uh, the Ten Commandments. You know that because he's using language right out of Leviticus. He's using the Leviticus form of, of the Ten Commandments. And he's taking the Ten Commandments, and it surprises me because, see, I'm thinking, now, if I'm trying to reach the world, if I'm trying to be a light unto the world, the last thing I'm going to do is start talking about the Ten Commandments, <laughs> right? I'm going to kind of want to make some accommodation. I'm going to be finding a point of contact with them or something like that. Paul here, speaking of this light that is coming through the church, wants to talk about their morality and the way they live their lives and how that's going to expose this righteousness of God and the world. Are you scratching your head yet? Let me tell you why I think we don't readily understand this passage, especially as you'll see when we get to a later portion. I think many of us, in our contact with the law of God, was as what I'll describe as a Christian humanist. By that I mean I'm self-reliant. I'm relying on myself, my power, my wisdom, my efforts, and order to uh, uh, keep the law of God. But more, worse than that, I have, as a humanist, humanism, remember what I've said, always leads to nihilism. I probably came to a place in my Christian life where I became a Christian nihilist, or nihilist. How do you pronounce it? I never pronounce it right. Which way is it? You do it both ways, okay. But anyway, so I'll go back and forth for you. So I'll offend everybody. But do you hear the point? It's this idea that, that when I'm self-reliant and when I'm you know, relying upon my ability to keep the law, then what does the law do to me? It condemns me. It makes me feel like crap. And so the last thing I'm thinking is the way I'm going to reach unbelievers is I'm going to talk about the law of God. Because my experience as a Christian humanist is it, it makes me feel like crap. I don't need to start with that. Right? Ironically, this kind of shook me for a surprise. But see, for Paul, he's over here saying, you know, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord and the world. This light that was revealed through Messiah is now being mediated through the church. Paul says some pretty lofty things about the church, that the church is the body of Christ. That is, it's how the Christ gets now fleshed out during the ascension ministry. He says the church is the dwelling place of God. Some pretty lofty stuff. And he's saying, therefore, church, again, 
For at one time, you folk in this church, well, you were the darkness. No, he didn't say you practice that. He said you were the darkness. Now you are the light and the Lord, and therefore walk as children of light. And he goes on to say, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is a shameful even to speak of these things that they do, etc., etc. And therefore, he says, when anything's exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Uh, anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. Who's he talking to? He's talking to us. Quit sleeping, church. Awaken yourself. Understand who you are, the presence of God in the world. Understand what beautiful life that you can steward. And then again, counterintuitively, if you're a Christian humanist, therefore live that out. Those moral, that with moral clarity, live out the light righteousness of God or the world will flock to it. Let's, we've got to unpack this a little bit before we go on and, and conclude this. Notice carefully then how this all works out. He starts off talking about being the light. He gives a very extensive survey of the Ten Commandments now applied in the New Covenant sense. In other words, like Jesus, he doesn't just talk about the Ten Commandments and what you shouldn't do. He talks about the Ten Commandments and what you should do in the positive. You know, do not steal, but instead give to the poor kind of thing. That's how he goes. But more than that, he's going to talk about the Ten Commandments not just as they are outwardly, but as they are inwardly in our heart. That's exactly what Jesus said, remember, in the parable. You've heard it said that it's a sin to do blank. He says, well, I want to tell you if it's even in your heart, man, you're blowing it. Again, if you're a Christian humanist, you're getting condemned like crazy. I mean, you're going, oh, man, this is double condemnation. But if you remember what Paul has already done in chapter 1 and 2, how he's already called you dead, that is, he's, he's in touch with your brokenness and your sense of, of, of weariness and exasperation at even thinking that you can sustain the righteousness of God in yourself. And if you've heard him tell you about what the work of Christ was on his first coming, his incarnation, and how that work brought you an atonement for sin where you no longer have to feel guilty and you no longer have to be afraid of being condemned by the law. You see, by the time Paul gets to chapter 4 and 5, these Ephesians have been restored now to that love of the law. The law is not something I'm afraid of. It's not condemning me. It's actually now the very beautiful city, description of a city on a hill, that the world would love to be in contact with. So it's kind of a radical statement, isn't it? And so notice what he does here. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So children, walk in the light. He then quotes Isaiah 60, and particularly he says this, the prophets look forward to this messianic era is what he's saying. And you're living in it, an age of great opportunity. Awaken them. And notice again what he says. And here's the passage. You're, if you're looking at your English, I think it was up there, it said it this way. Make the best use of your time. I'm sorry, but that is a horrible translation. Here's what it is. This word, this little language, make the best use of, that's the word, this very big pregnant word, redemption. 
some translations do say, redeemed the time. Now, time there is the word, I guess, for age. What he's saying is the prophets told you that in the coming of the Messiah, after the coming of the Messiah, we'd enter into a age of great darkness where there'd be great trouble, where people would experience this nihilism in a particular way. And he says, and you, the church, you have the, this, this messianic light given to you wherein you will be drawing the nations out of their despair, out of their nihilism, into this glorious, radiant light of Christ. They will fly out. Now, you're just sitting there thinking, like maybe I am, a little bit cynically, but just stop and think about what's happened since Christ's ascension. You could, you could measure geographically the, the, the area that the light of God manifests, its, where the light of God manifests itself through Israel, up all the way through even the, the death of Christ. And it would be a region not much bigger than maybe southern New England. Maybe New England, I haven't figured it out. I still haven't figured it out. But now, and that would have been over... 6,000 years? How, I mean, I'm not going to go into the old earth, new earth, all that kind of stuff. But whatever it is, thousands and thousands of years. Since Christ's ascension, and what has been written right here in these words by Paul, the expansion of the gospel, the expansion, the, the nations that have just been flocking to Christianity. Well, there's almost nowhere on the face of the earth where you don't see it. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of the power of this little church in the middle of New Haven? If only we believed it. If we would not be ashamed of it. Here he goes on. He says, look, that, that there's this age, and, and John 9 talks about it, we must work the works of him who sent me now while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. The gospel writers from Christ have a very optimistic view of the age that you and I live in. But here's the way the optimistic view works, if you're processing it. It's not that we're living in an age of triumph, and this is not the age of, of celebrating victory yet. Quite the contrary. He says, there's going to be a lot of trouble for you as Christians in this age. These are going to be dark times. Over and over, both in the gospels but also in the epistles, we are told, don't be surprised when a lot of fiery trials come upon you. Don't be surprised when there's darkness, nihilism all over the place. But after Frederick Nietzsche and this idea of optimistic nihilism, we can say, but that's exactly the hand of God. The hand of God preparing humanity to be to want and to be open to and to see the light. But where are they going to see it? If we're hiding it under a bushel, as Jesus says, if we're afraid to be transcended, if we enter into the mess of the way the world does morality so as not to stick out, we've lost our power. That's the point that he's making. For the days are evil. That is to say that they are dark. And therefore, he says, watch carefully how you walk. Remember, Paul is also the guy that says in 1 Timothy, now the Spirit expressly says that in the last days, 
then he gives this long list of just how dark things are going to be. Deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, people who will be lovers of themselves. Sound familiar? Loves of money. Sound familiar? That is selfish people. (laughs) Boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, haters of good, lovers of pleasure. I mean, you could pretty much sum up everything that's going on in our dark world right now in some of the in, in one of these things. Sexual harassment, abuse of power, objectifying human beings, using them for selfish pleasure. People who are lying and then lying and then saying, "Well, it's not a lie." I mean, it just it's just gotten out of control. You would think. But I'm here to tell you this is not unusual. I know you must think it is, but this has been going on since Caesar and the church. It's just not that unusual. And so here's where all this comes down. Paul is wanting us to hear that in this world of of darkness, that Christ has come. And his coming is such that he is now present among the world, in the world, by the very light that is given to the church. A light that is more brilliantly lived to the degree that our morality, the way we live our lives, transcends the darkness of the culture wars and the way in which those culture wars, if you think, what is a culture war? At the heart of a culture war, is the supposition of humanism, every one of us. At the heart of a culture war is this fundamental belief that something that is not the true light is my light, and I have to fight it. It could be America. It could be another nation. It could be party A, party B, vision of how to love the poor, whatever it is. It goes on and on and on, but at the core is exactly what was going on in Laotai. There was a huge debate. There were two factions, two parties in Israel. One is pro-Assyrian. One is pro, I mean, it was pro-Egypt. Uh, one was pro, and you could just go on and on and on and on. There were two factions in Jesus' day with respect to how to deal with Caesar. The Pharisees tried to exploit that. Whose coin is this? Oh, this is going to be great. Watch this. I'm going to get Jesus admired in the culture war, and no one's going to like him then. See, that's and what do, what do we do? We start playing the game, we start playing morality as it's been politicized or as it's been humanized. There's a great, great lesson in this passage. If we were to take the time to look at his description of what this light actually looks like, and I would encourage you to do it sometime today if you can. Go back. And just slowly read, beginning in chapter 4, verse 17, all the way through chapter 5, uh, whatever it is at the end of that passage. And just ask yourself, step back and think, what would it mean? I mean, for instance, uh, what it, would it mean to really stand above the fray and not traffic or speak or Google, I mean, or, or email or Twitter or Facebook, anything? that is falsehood. 
and you're going to ask, but what is falsehood in this nihilistic culture of ours? And we're going to say, well, go to the scripture to find out what that is. I mean, falsehood, you know, has to be proven with, by this, this you know, there's a, a story always seems right until the other story is heard. Have you done your due diligence to do that before you start trafficking this stuff? You see, that's truth. What if Christians really had this very high view of truth, believing that truth is objective and universal? How would that change the way you talk, the way you, again, share ideas, etc.? It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, which would give grace to those who hear. Can you imagine a church who takes that seriously? <laughs> it would be demonic. It's interesting. I was looking at Bonhoeffer. Some of you know he lived in the day of Nazi Germany and was well known. And, and there are there are times when this church ought to rightly speak out to authority, speak into power. He was one of one of those days. You went and believed the excruciating details in a little book. It's uh, the word truth is in. I can't remember the full name, but the detail that he goes to that put conditions on him for when he could properly speak the truth publicly. You wouldn't believe it. He says can't be done in every context. He tried to avoid it being politicized, for instance. He said it can't be done with bitterness, because bitterness will always come through and distort, even if it's what you've said is a true fact, it won't be a true sense of the fact. I mean, he goes on and on and on working this passage out in the context of that horrible regime. What if Christians lived that way today? Truth and love is what this book was called. Telling the truth is not telling it in all places, quote, unquote. Telling the truth is not uh, uh, telling it in any motives, quote, unquote. And on it goes and goes. What about the second? That was the ninth commandment. What about... The sixth commandment, putting away all anger. Can you imagine? Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. What if we were to make as a rule, I will say and speak and do nothing out of these sorts of impulses, out of these sorts of impulses? Wow. Would we stick out? I mean, this is the Bible. I'm not even reading anything into it. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Christ forgave you. Be angry. Do not sin. In other words, don't traffic it. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Don't resolve it. Reconcile. Don't give an opportunity for the devil. Why? Because he understands the church has this incredible and transcendent opportunity the gospel of Jesus Christ, a light which if we believed on it, and as we sought to, to live it, and when we don't humbly confess our sins before the world of not living, where they can be drawn to the gospel of forgiveness with yet this beautific vision of a, of a morality of great clarity, I, we might be surprised how the world would flock to us. Well, I'll close with this. You know, he talks, you know, he talks about sexual purity again. We, we can talk about that a lot, too. We can go back to the have of the well and have a lot of conversations. But let me just end with this idea. You know, it was 
it was um, it was very eye-awakening for me to read Frederick Nietzsche and this idea of optimistic nihilism. So I just want to leave you with this thought. How are you doing? Are you sitting in this room and are you identifying with Emil? The person who's who's beginning to see the unraveling of our world, it seems like, in before our very eyes. If you are, the encouragement on the one hand is to say, things are just as the prophet said that they would be. So now you're going to become an opportunistic nihilist. And I don't mean opportunistic for yourself. You're going to believe, begin to understand that, you know, so is your, 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 the guy you work with. So is the person that you go to school with. Now you have this incredible opportunity to say, wow, we live in dark times. You know, it's leading me away from, in so many words, a kind of humanism that thinks that the solution is here. It leads me to wanting another world, to enter into this world, another person, another life. I hope it will embolden you. See, the scriptures tell you what you're seeing is exactly what is expected to see. And I hope it emboldens you to be more confident in what we supposedly celebrate every Christmas. The light that came into the darkness. This kind of light, unlike every other light, is darkness.